0: Habakkuk tonight, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And I've entitled the uh, message, uh, The Lord's Astounding Answer. And as we get started here, uh, note the outline. The theme of the book is The Just Shall Live by Faith. And uh, last week, we took a a look at the first uh, part of chapter 1, and uh, we titled it Habakkuk's uh, First Question. And now, uh, tonight, God's first answer in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Habakkuk was a troubled prophet. He saw corruption all around him in the, in the nation of Judah. And he prayed that God would do something about it. But it just kept on keeping on. Things were not getting better. In fact, it kept getting worse. So he came to the Lord with two questions. Number one, how long? How long is God going to let this go on before he does something about it? And number two, why? Why does God allow him to continually see such trouble? Habakkuk noted the problems of violence, plundering, strife, contention, no justice, abuse for the righteous. And all because there is no regard for the law. How long? Why? This was the prophet's cry. Well, Habakkuk's grievance before God could be summarized in this way. Uh, Note uh, My summary here, Yahweh, why do you continue to allow flagrant iniquity to go on among your people? Why is this happening? Wickedness all around, and nothing is is keeping it in check. Well, what follows in our study tonight is the Lord's reply, and it comes as a little bit of a shock, to say the least. Notice Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. So God, in effect, told Habakkuk that his vision was too small. He needed to broaden his horizons. You see, Habakkuk had been zeroed in on his own people, the context of Judah. But God tells him now to look among the nations and watch. God's program was bigger than Habakkuk realized. His ways of working are broader than Habakkuk ever imagined. You see, Habakkuk, it seems, was expecting God to uh, narrowly deal with Judah. But God, on a larger scale, was going to work involving the nations. In a way that Habakkuk never imagined. The nations is the Hebrew word Goyim, referring to the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations of the world. Liberty Bible Commentary says God is at work on a universal scale in order to bring His universal power and influence to bear on the evils that Habakkuk and the righteous of Judah are experiencing. So the first thing God says, in effect, is broaden your horizons. You have just been looking internally at Judah. But look outward more broadly to the nations and see what I am doing. And note this double emphasis on look and watch. And then God says, as you see what I am saying about what I'm doing, be utterly astounded. Be utterly astounded. That is be shocked, be dumbfounded, flabbergasted, bewildered. And as it turns out, that was Habakkuk's response, as we see in chapter 1, verse 12, and in verse 17. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, the verbs look and watch in the Hebrew include the plural you. God addressed both the prophet and the people. God says, I will work a work. You're accusing me of just sitting over here not doing anything, but God says, no, I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. It's so shocking, God says, you will find it hard to believe. Now recall that Habakkuk essentially had accused God of being passive, indifferent, or or insensitive. Remember how he said in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? God seemed to just be non-responsive, not doing anything. God's reply is that he is about to do something. Something far bigger and far more shocking than Habakkuk ever imagined. Now, there's an important lesson here. When it sometimes looks to us like God's not doing anything, maybe it's simply because we don't see the whole picture. Our vision is too narrow. New Bible commentary says this preconceived ideas may well have made it more difficult for him to accept God's answer. Yet his prayers cannot be reckoned as unavailing. God was at work in answer to those prayers, just not in the way that Habakkuk expected. By the way, there's an interesting footnote here. Uh, Paul at Antioch in Pisidia in Acts chapter 13 made application of this very text, that is Habakkuk 1:5, as he preached the gospel to the Jews, and here's what he said as he's making application. Acts 13, therefore, let it be known to you, he's speaking to the Jews in this context, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, here's his challenge, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And what is it that he's, he's warning them about? Habakkuk one five. It's a... Uh, A quote, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. He's quoting out of Septuagint, so it's just a word just a little bit different than Hebrew. But uh, he's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. You see, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5 is really a statement of coming judgment upon the Jews. And Paul in Acts 13 made application to them. That if they reject the gospel, this is what is going to happen. Something shocking would happen. a shocking development would be coming that 's the application. and what was he really talking about? What do you suppose is the shocking development that would would come upon the Jews if they were rejecting well what 's that? Well, that would figure in, yeah. But in the context here, in the same chapter, note what he goes on to say. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. Then, uh, their rejection response, they grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, to you Jews, the, the gospel first to the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, my friends, that is shocking. If you're a Jew, that's shocking. That was totally beyond any norm or expectation to the Jews that God would work in this way. He, he wouldn't stoop so low as to abandon us, the chosen, and, and go to the Gentiles? What? That's Habakkuk 1, five. God can work in relationship to the Gentiles in a shocking way that you might not recognize. It's unthinkable to them that God would set the Jews aside to now work with the Gentiles. Sometimes God works in and through the Gentiles in ways that are shocking and astonishing to the Jews. And this was one of those cases here in Habakkuk. And precisely what was this shocking thing that God was about to do in relation to the nations? Well, let's read on. Verse 6. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth. To possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Notice what God says. I'm, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans. With the implication that they are going to be the instrument of judgment. That God will use to discipline his people Judah. Now let me tell you. That was a whole brand new thought. That was so far outside the box. It was astounding. And evidently, Habakkuk had been praying for revival, but God was answering with judgment. Sometimes God answers our prayers in in ways we never imagined. But it's not that he's just passive and inactive over here. Oh, no. Sometimes uh, he answers in ways we would never expect. You see, Habakkuk was disgusted with the violence all around in his own context, his own people of Judah. Well, God was about to deal with it in the form of the ruthless Babylonians wreaking havoc on his people Judah. They were about to reap as they had sown. Now, let's talk about Chaldea for just a moment. Chaldea is the older form uh, referring to Babylon. Chaldea, Babylon, really simultaneous. Chaldea is the old word uh, kind of depicting the origins of what became Babylon uh, technically, Chaldea was the area inhabited by the uh, Armenian people uh, from the southern part of Babylon. And out of this people group de- developed the Babylonian Empire, which came to full power under Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. Nebuchadnezzar is described, by the way, in Ezra chapter 5, verse 12, as, quote, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean. So he originated from this area in southern Babylon. Uh, Let's uh, look at a few overheads here, just to kind of give you the uh, historical context. In 626, Babylon gained independence from Assyria. Before Babylon, Assyria was the major world power. But then Babylon moved into that position. Uh, And and, uh, we see here uh, they gained independence from Assyria in 626. They kind of threw off Assyria and kind of became their own independent nation. But then in 605, they actually defeated Assyria. They actually took over the top dog position and were in that position until they were defeated by Persia in 539 BC. So let's let's take a look at this here on the map. Those of you who sat up front, uh, you are blessed because you can see the map. But anyway, uh, here we are, uh, Babylonia. Uh, This uh, southern area here is what we call Chaldea. And it grew, but uh, you can see Assyria is up to the north here. But uh, then as we move along here, the Assyrian Empire, you can see it ended up taking over the area of Babylon, Chaldea, and extended through the whole area all the way down into uh, the Promised Land and down into Egypt. So Assyria took over this, this whole area. But then in about 626, uh, here Babylon's throwing off Assyria and becoming its own independent state. And then as we move on further in history, here's the Babylonian. Look at how similar this is, by the way. Here's Assyria, and here's Babylon. So you can see Babylon kind of took over pretty much the same territory, roughly, as belonged to Assyria before. Well, realize that we think Habakkuk wrote somewhere between 625 and 605 BC, which is the very time frame in which Babylon was starting to overcome the Assyrian empire and take over as the dominant world power on the scene in those days. So God is plainly saying that he and his sovereignty is bringing this about and that Babylon, the Chaldeans, will be his instrument of judgment that he uses on the people of Judah. Judah. Note the emphasis on God's sovereignty in this. In verse 5, he says, I will work a work. Who's going to do this? God. Verse 6, he says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is God's sovereign work. Nelson's study Bible, God controls the nations for his own purposes. Sometimes indirectly, and at other times directly. But one of the things you see in this book is that God is sovereign. Sometimes you say, oh my goodness, what's the world coming to? Well, It's coming to a predetermined end, according to God's sovereign plan, that's for sure. And as I have often noted, the nations specifically referenced in prophecy are essentially there because of how they interface with God's chosen people, Israel, or in this case, Judah. They are a part of the narrative because of what God is doing in relationship to Israel. And so it is here. There's really one chosen nation among the nations of the world, and that is God's people, Israel. Now we might ask ourselves, well, did not God know how bad these Chaldeans were, these Babylonian people were? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, he knew. Notice God himself describes them as bitter and hasty, a bitter and hasty nation. Bitter means fierce or cruel. They would be ruthless, and they would be swift. Man, it's amazing how how quickly uh, the Babylonians took over the Assyrian Empire. Now, he said they would march through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. And that is what they they did. Uh, And they moved as they went along, pretty much uh, once they got rolling, unchallenged, essentially. Nobody could stop them. And so they took over forcefully, uh, and they took what wasn't theirs. Verse 7 They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Boy, this is quite the description of these people. Uh, They're shown to be terrifyingly cruel and very arrogant. In their minds, they determine their own standards, Uh, they they determine their own reality. They were postmodern before postmodernism was uh, known. Uh, They consider themselves to be a self-made people. They are the authority in their minds. They set their own rules. Notice, their dignity proceeds from themselves. We're self-made people. We set the standard. We make the rules. But we know better because we just read in verse 5 and verse 6 that God is the one who is sovereignly behind their rise to power. Remember that? In uh, verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. They weren't self-made. God was allowing this. Now, there are a few things that are more pathetic than those who think they are self-made, self-made in their achievements. Uh, One commentary says, the only law they recognize is a law of their own making, and they are a law unto themselves. That was their attitude. Another commentary says they recognize no codes of military conduct. They own no superior power, a law unto themselves. They promote their own honor. That was their attitude. They were cruel, fierce, and arrogant. In short, arrogance defines them as brought out here at the end of verse 7. Now recall that Nebuchadnezzar, you remember Nebuchadnezzar, very puffed up with pride. And he really had this mindset. But then God put him out to pasture for seven years until he came to his senses and gave God the glory. And we read in the book of Daniel, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. But I want to zero in on this. He removes kings and raises up kings. Uh, it's good to remember that. God is sovereignly behind the powers that be. Notice his continuing description of these people in verse 8. Their horses, are, their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry uh, moves from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. So God is using very descriptive terms here to show the overwhelming uh, fierceness of this Babylonian army. Uh, They came on especially swift horses. As I say, it's amazing how quickly they took over the known world. They were exceedingly fierce like hungry wolves. Their horsemen charge boldly forward as they come from afar. And they pounce like an eagle, or perhaps a better translation here is vulture, on its prey. Verse 9 says, They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. So notice, they don't come gently. They don't come gently. They come violently. They come to plunder violently. And they intend to forcefully take over, which they did. No holds barred. Now recall that the complaint of Habakkuk, earlier in chapter 1 here verses 2 and 3 was about the violence of the land twice he complains about the violence in the land of Judah well the violent are about to experience violence at the hands of the Babylonians they are about to reap what they have sown with violent intent they move forward like the piercing of the desert wind and they gather an innumerable amount of captives it says like sand Thus, they're kind of pictured as invincible in their advance. No one can stop them. God says to Judah, you know what God's saying to Judah? And the prophet got it. They're coming for you. You think I'm not doing anything? Oh, I'm doing something all right. I'm setting the stage for judgment day. And it's going to come at the hand of these Babylonians. And I'm raising up for this very purpose. Verse 10 They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. You know what? They're very arrogant, like I say. They're intimidated by no one. They scoff at kings, scorn world leaders. They laugh in derision at every supposed stronghold that would keep them out or that would stop them. That's just, that's laughable. Nobody's going to stop us. They have total confidence that they're going to march on and, and overtake everybody in their path, which they basically were allowed to do. Now it's common, it's interesting what it says here uh, at the end of verse 10, they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. It was common back in the day here. Uh, if you had a powerful military and you were attacking a city that had you know, big walls built around it, what would you do? Well, you would build up an earthen mound and just kind of go over the city wall. And uh, that's the idea here. Uh, They would build up uh, mounds and and go right over the city wall. Well, uh, Thomas Constable says just one paragraph is needed to show their savagery. Pyramids of human heads marked the path of the conqueror. Boys and girls were burnt alive or reserved for a a worse fate. Men were impaled, flayed alive, blinded, or deprived of their hands and feet or their ears and their noses, while women and children were carried away into slavery. The captured cities were plundered and reduced to ashes. The trees of the neighborhoods cut down. What the Assyrians had previously banned, the Chaldeans subsequently became And this was the nation that God was raising up as his instrument of judgment. (laughs) Think about this. Uh, This is the description of the nation that God is raising up to be an instrument of judgment on his own people. No wonder this was shocking. I think Habakkuk expected consequences all right. But not to this extreme. Not like this. Not at the hands of these wicked, wicked people. Certainly God wouldn't work that way. And that's where we'll go next time in our study. Is like, okay, we're wicked, but these people are more wicked. You're going to take a more wicked people and bring punishment upon us, a less wicked people? That just kind of blows the prophet's mind. Verse 11. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense ascribing this power to his God. The phrase here, when it says in the the New King James, uh, then his mind changes, is more literally, then he shall sweep on like wind. And I think most of the other translations uh, are closer here to what uh, the the literal meaning here is. Uh, Literally, then he shall sweep on like the wind. The sense here is that they might come to a stronghold, but just like the wind, they would sweep through and keep on moving. You know, you can't stop the wind, right? You might want to try today. I mean, some of those fifty, sixty mile an hour wind gusts. Uh, but you know what? It just kind of keeps moving. Uh, you, you might try to stop the. I don't know how you might try that. Uh, it, it's, you're not going to be able to do it. And that's the idea here. They're unstoppable. And it is true that with amazing speed, the Babylonian army took over the known world far and wide. But note the qualifier. It says. At the end of verse 11, he commits offense ascribing this power to his God. Now, this phrase is variously translated as follows. Let me give you uh, some of the other translations here. The ESV, guilty men whose might is their God. The New American Standard, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible, they are guilty. Their strength is their God. In the end, although God would allow Babylon to move through the world in an unstoppable manner to apply discipline to his people, even so, this great power would then be judged by God. They've gone too far. Uh, He commits offense. He's guilty. He's done something really... He's crossed a line with God. And what would that be? Well, he has... uh, A God, all right, and he thinks it's really himself, his own power. In the end, although God would allow Babylon to move through the world in this unstoppable manner, they would come under the judgment of God. Not only would she be judged for her inhumane cruelty, but especially in context in this verse, on their extreme arrogance... Now, we might expect it to be on their tremendous abuse, as has been described at some length in these verses, as we have seen in the mistreatment of people, in the whole process. But the thing that God really zeroes in on here in verse 11 is Babylon's exceedingly great pride. They thought they were all that. They worshiped their own power. Now, Babylon, as epitomized in Nebuchadnezzar, worshiped at the altar of self, really. Uh, They thought they were self-made great. They, in effect, worship their own military power. And as the ESV translates it, whose own might is their God. They worship their own strength. They worship their own invincibility. That's a high-octane arrogance. I think uh, America's kind of had that arrogance a little bit sometimes. I mean, we are the lone superpower. You do know that, right? You should know that because we've been told that for years and years. Watch out. Pride is a blinding thing. God allows tyrants like this to continue for a time. And he even uses them in the process. But then the text says they commit a or as the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, they are guilty. They are guilty of not recognizing the truth of Yahweh, who is the one who has really raised them up. You remember Nebuchadnezzar prancing around there, looking down over in the city of Babylon. Is not this great Babylon. You know, it's... I've built it. It's all about me. Nebuchadnezzar, would you like grass for dinner? Go out to the pasture. He's humbled in a big way. They were guilty. It is true. Uh, The all-powerful God of Israel allowed them to come to this point. But then he would hold them guilty for their arrogance. And of course, arrogance and cruelty go together. You know, when you think you're all-powerful and there's no one to hold you accountable, uh, then what do you do? You tend to abuse people. Well, they were really in for a major surprise, as are all egomaniacs. Evangelical commentary says, Elated by their successes, they will throw away all sense of propriety, their reckless pride thereby, sowing the seeds of their own destruction. Their fatal mistake was their pride. Their extreme ego... Pride, especially uh, the deification of one's own power, is offensive to God, uh, who alone deserves our worship. They're worshiping all right, but they're worshiping their own power here. Well, let's make uh, a few applications as we wrap up here tonight. Number one, God gave Habakkuk a revelation, not an explanation. God is under no obligation to explain the why of what he does, in the way he does it, or in the timing of it. You know, that's the thing about God. He doesn't really owe anybody an explanation. If God is pleased to reveal what he is doing, that's totally his prerogative. But he owes us no explanation. In fact, who do we think we are to even really demand an answer to our why questions? Uh, we can ask reverently, but even so, in this case, uh, God did not give Habakkuk an explanation. He simply told him what was coming. So he gave him a revelation, not an explanation, really. Under that, note these subpoints. note these two things. Number one, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some secret things that we'll never figure out. We don't know why. Uh, the second point here, in balance, God tells his people Israel that he does nothing unless, quote, he reveals his secret to his servants the prophets in Amos 3 7. That is a, an, a unique truth about Israel. This is unique to the one chosen nation, the, the people of Israel. God has mapped out what he is going to be doing in relationship to Israel through the prophets. Notice what he says there. He does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now we see this here in Habakkuk. Do we not? He plainly told them that the Babylonians were coming. And they did. Number two. Even though we might think God is passive or inactive, which is what Habakkuk was really accusing God of. Why aren't you answering my prayers? I've been crying and you don't answer in reality, God was at work in a big picture way. And sometimes he's in work at work in a big picture way in ways we don't understand unless he reveals it to us. God, in effect, told Habakkuk that he was not passive, as he was seemingly being accused of. But rather, he was are you ready for this? He was setting the stage for what was to come. They just didn't know it. So he says, look among the nations. Don't just look at Judah. Look, look bigger. What's going on out here? What was happening right at this moment? Babylon was moving into position to become the next world power. Sometimes God is setting the stage. Don't confuse what appears to be inactivity with God with him merely setting the stage for what is to come. In fact, I've written a whole uh, series on this uh, prophetic stage setting. When God tells us certain alignment of the nations that will be in place in the last days, and we see things starting to shape up there, we maybe we ought to take note of that. And it's there for a reason. We do want to be careful about that. But uh, God is setting the stage. And it is a real thing, the stage setting thing. And you say, well, where do you find that in the scriptures? Well, one place I find is here in Habakkuk. He told him, I'm setting the stage. Look to the nations. I'm setting the stage right now i 'm the chaldeans there 's a reason they 're moving through the world, and no one 's stopping them i 'm doing this, God says i 'm setting the stage for what is to come. And third and finally here god 's ways are not our ways they 're always above our ways, and I like to say they 're always better than our ways. One of the standout lessons in all the prophets is this emphasis on god 's sovereignty. It is the anchor that you were talking about, brother uh god is sovereign he controls history as we say history really is his story that's our anchor i had that in my note right here Uh, the anchor of our faith is our sovereign god and it's really this reality as you move through the book of of habakkuk that he came to understand so clearly and the reason he could come to the place of rejoicing at the end of the book his circumstances hadn't changed But his view of God and his sovereignty had changed. That's where we find our anchor. It's not always in our circumstances. It's in the sovereignty of God. Rejoice, God is in control. You say, well, he was in control until the previous election. Uh, No, 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 no. And he was in control before that previous election and before that one. He's in charge all the way through. And he often works in ways that don't make sense to us. How in the world could we arrive here? Oh well, I wonder, I wonder. Uh, look at the the the, the apostasy uh, of the people. God is God. He can do whatever he wants to, in whatever way he wants to, according to whatever timing he wants to. He's God. You know, I've already started his presupposition. Uh, you know, I I just want to agree with God, whatever it is. I don't want to have any agenda. Uh, you know, all the great controversies. It's like, God, I just want to align with you and your truth. That's where I want to be. David Levy says this. Often Christians pray, God, where is justice? Do something about the moral and social corruption flooding the United States. But what, he says, this is David Levy. This isn't me, so don't don't put your stones down. Uh, uh, Levy says, but what if God were to reveal how he was going to right the wrongs in this country? He is full of surprises. It might mean the demise of America. His answer to Habakkuk's prayer meant meant Judah's demise. That is the answer to Habakkuk's prayer. No, that's astounding. God, you wouldn't do that. You're going to allow the Babylonians to destroy us? Oh yeah, you're going off to captivity for 70 years. They're going to haul you off, and not gently either. Well, we pray for revival, and we do. And, and that is good. But you know, sometimes God answers prayers in, in a way that we might not expect. Sometimes He answers in the form of judgment. Well, in both cases, God is sovereign. He's always sovereign. And he asks us to trust him come what may, no matter what's coming. He is sovereign, and we can trust him. Indeed, what is the theme of the book? The just shall live by faith. That's where we are. And what is our faith in? God's sovereignty. He's in control. That's why we can rejoice. No no matter, you know, you go to the end of the book. It's amazing what he says there uh, right at the end of the book. Though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, uh, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no fruit, though the flocks may be cut off from the fold and there, there be no herd in the stalls. Are you kidding me? This is bleak. This is not good. And then he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my highways. Wow, ends on a high note in the book. Habakkuk has seen the truth of God's sovereignty and that God is his strength and he will see him through this, whatever's coming in the future here. Well, let's have our closing song and then I'll close this in prayer this evening here.
1: What a fellowship, what a joy divine, Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace of mind, Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure, you